0: With.
1: Hello ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming to the Cynodrome this afternoon, I'm Jason Solomons, the host and programmer of the Cynodrome, and this is my cultural debate afternoon around cinema. I want to talk about filmmaking as a career, inspirational filmmakers and I thought is there an inspirational Welsh filmmaker that I know and I thought yes there is and I'm going to get her here to Green Manor and she said well I shall be coming from my mum's birthday party in Swansea to go to the Green Man's. Please welcome the hugely talented, brilliantly inspirational, Sally Al-Husseini. Hello. <laughs> Sally uh, is a filmmaker who burst onto the scene, I would say, with her debut film, My Brother the Devil. She has currently got the most popular film on Netflix, The Swimmers, and she's just completed her most recent work. It's called Unicorns, which you've never seen or heard of, but you will today. She's just completed it, and she's taking it to Toronto, uh, the film festival, the hugely important film festival in September. So Sally is... uh, Well, she's on the rise. It's just uh, fantastic to see how well it's going, Sally. As as a filmmaker, were you into film when you were growing up? Is that what you always wanted to do? And how would you do it? How did you get inspired to to, to even think, oh, one day I'm going to make movies?
0: Well, I didn't, actually. (laughs) So um, my mum is Welsh. um, My dad was Egyptian. And I was born in Swansea, but then grew up in Cairo. And growing up there, you know, at home we spoke English and I went to an English speaking school there. And as a result, my Arabic wasn't so great. So I didn't really watch TV, watch films. So I was all about reading and just read books and all about stories. And at the time I thought I wanted to be a writer or an archaeologist when I was growing up.
1: Egypt's a good place for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I fell in love with stories and storytelling, actually and um, didn't actually realize that I wanted to do film until I was in university uh, in the UK, unhappy with what I was studying. And I realized the only times I'd ever been happy was when I was taking photographs when I was young, um, when I was writing poetry. um, And I was like, what job would combine images, making images, words? and telling stories and being around people because I don't want to be really isolated like some writers are. And a light bulb switched on and I thought, oh, it's film. But it hadn't even occurred to me that it was an option or it was something I could do because I knew nobody in the film industry and I had no connections (laughs) to any of it. And when you don't know anybody, you really are starting from zero. And it, I remember my auntie saying there was someone in her building that maybe did documentaries, but I wasn't allowed to knock on his door because it would be too embarrassing. Um, so I went to Q and I handed uh, a lovely letter to Ken Loach at the end of one of his film screenings. And it was just desperately like hanging around, showing up places, um, trying to get my foot in the door unsuccessfully. And then you I went to
1: filmmaker Q and A's like yeah, like, like this. Here, like in this. fact,
0: I sat in a tent like this at Glastonbury Music, the cinema tent in Glastonbury and in other festivals, watching other filmmakers on stage thinking, oh, how, how on earth do I do it? <laughs> um, well, you're even more perfect to guest than I thought. <laughs> I didn't know this. <laughs> um, so then I realized, okay, what is it that makes me unique? What's my USP, my unique selling point? And it was the fact that I speak Arabic. And I thought, okay, um, that will help me get my foot in the door. So in fact it did help me and I targeted companies that were making documentaries for television mainly Middle East documentaries and they needed people who spoke Arabic and so that was actually my first job in the industry Was working in documentaries
1: So you actually wrote to say so I, like I'm an Arabic expert. I want to get into film Can I help you and someone yeah. said actually
0: Yes. Yeah, they were looking for... At that point, it was... They called the jobs, like, um, assistant producers, APs. Um, But it was a real film school because they would want you to go out places and use the cameras and film and do everything. So, um, yeah. Uh,
1: That's probably very good advice for anyone getting involved in film. You want to... It, it, it isn't really a job that exists, you go and you know, apply yeah. for it, you have to go and get do something for it. And
0: certainly directing, it's one of those um, mysterious jobs where you can come from any route with all kinds of experiences or life experiences, and also any age. You know, I ended up, after working in documentaries for a few years, moving into the production office on uh, feature films, because... I knew what I really wanted to be doing was filmmaking and doing feature films. So everything in the documentaries, when I'd learned everything I could, it was all about how to get more into fiction filmmaking. And I managed to get into the production office first and spent a few years in the production office which was great because again, it's a film school where you listen and learn and watch everybody else do all the jobs, but also infuriated because you want to be doing the creative and you're there organizing everything for everyone Um, and doing all the logistics. Um, So I did that for a few years. And then I moved and got a job at the BBC where I was a script editor for years working um, on drama programs and with writers. And it was after that when I'd been working for about 10 years that I thought, right, when am I gonna stop and just make my own films? And um, in some of those roles, you find yourself slightly exploited at times in terms of um, how much you're giving to the job or doing beyond your job description. Mm -hmm. And you think, okay, it's all about confidence, really. There are some people who maybe come out of film school and they've got the confidence to just start, but I didn't. Because I hadn't gone to film school, because I didn't know anyone, I kept thinking, there's all this stuff I need to learn. And then I just turned around and ten years had gone by, and I wasn't making my own films. And I think the pain of not making my own films was greater than the pain of just going, right, I've got to do it. And it just drew a line and started once again making shorts.
1: But you did make shorts. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't go, right, I'm gonna make, I'm ready to do my first feature, and everyone's waiting for that.
0: Well... I st- uh, there was a competition for a one minute film that BAFTA was running and it, it coincided with me leaving my job at the BBC and I thought let me just try that and see how that turns out and it did really well and I like won the Welsh category for it and I was like oh, okay that's just a sign from the universe that I should continue with this yeah. and then I wrote um, three very ambitious short films that were about 20 minutes each and got rejected from every fund going and couldn't get the money for them. And I thought, okay, this is really hard. There's not a lot of finance in shorts. Um, what should I do? And I thought, right, I have gotta start writing the feature film. So I started writing My Brother the Devil. And the reason it's set on a council estate in Hackney is that I was living at the time on a council estate in Hackney. So it was genuinely, I thought I would be filming that in my flat, you know, in my neighbor's flat, <laughs> um, in a low budget way. And then it took eight years to make my first film. And it's over that eight years, my ambition for the project grew. I would poured so much into it that, you know, I wanted everybody to be paid properly. I didn't want it to be a micro budget film. Um, I had a lot more ambition for it um, that the project just um, I could have done it quicker. But eight years meant that I could do it right. And the, and the way it needed to be. When I had the script for that film and I needed a producer, that was one of the hardest things was finding a producer, finding somebody who would concretely believe in the project and join me on this journey and help me raise money. And so I went along to Cannes Film Festival by staying in a different city, um, because it was much cheaper, renting a car and driving into Cannes every morning, and it's parking under the Palais, and then showing up, trying to like, show my script to people. And the first year I was there, I met lots of other people who were like me from the UK, who'd gone there because the film industry was there, and that was maybe where we could meet a producer for our projects. And I didn't meet anyone that year, but I made some good friends. And then the following year I went and showed up, and I'd say about half of them also showed up, but half had dropped away and given up. And on the third year that I went, there were just a couple of us. So again, about it being a marathon, not a sprint. You know, I'm a much more creative person. And if I don't have to think about all the producing side, I really won't. But I trained myself how to do that and ended up pretty much producing that film because I got what's called an MG or a minimum guarantee before a producer was on board and Raised some money for the film before I had a producer. So there's a lot you have to You don't have to know how to do it all in the beginning, but once you start then you go. Okay What's the next step? What's the next step and and just go step by step like that? because um, It's very easy To see a lot of people who talk about making their first film or talk about it But there's a lot of fear And I'd say, as soon as you start, it demystifies it, and then you've got something concrete. It's like no first draft of of a script is suddenly amazing. They're all bad. (laughs) You know, my, my subsequent scripts, they're all terrible, the first draft. So you've got to allow yourself that really bad first draft if you're going to write that script. And the reason why I wrote was it was free. Nobody could stop me. Whereas directing, you need money, you need a team, you need equipment, you know, but something you can be starting with immediately is writing.
1: How many, because people do think, oh, I can write a screenplay and then it's first draft and you say it's rubbish. So second draft, how many drafts does it of take? My
0: brother the devil, I did about 25 drafts. Yeah, no joke. I mean, writing is rewriting. That's what they say and it really is true. But until you have that first draft, you've got nothing to improve. So just get to the end. That's always my advice to anyone I meet who's working on something is just get to the very end because then you've got something to improve and then you've got something to show someone and you've got something to work on and build and develop. Um, and then in terms of not knowing what a script is like, there's a website called IMSDB, the script database, and other sites like Scriptorama that have loads of screenplays online. And the best way, I always say, to, to know how to write a screenplay is to like, pick 10 of your favorite films and read those screenplays. After reading 10 screenplays, you'll know exactly what you need to do. And you have to create your own method or your own process to how you do it. And there's not one way. And I was thinking about how I approached My Brother the Devil and how I approached the swimmers and unicorns. It was slightly differently for each of them, but it was exactly how it was needed for that particular film. Um, So you adapt to the project. And just the same way you're very careful in choosing the right cast, you have to choose the right crew. So one of the reasons you know, showing up to everything that there is, meeting other people like at the Cannes Film Festival who are at your level also hustling, trying to do similar things, is you make those relationships. And what you then work out is that in five years, those are the people that become the cinematographers on your film and the editors on your film and the actors in your film. And you all move up together and you all make stuff together. And it's suddenly like those people I was making short films with are now in proper jobs in the industry
1: mm. and is it important to choose people who support your vision or will will kind of add to it or will sometimes deliver a corrective to it how do you pick your your team because it takes it takes a town as they say to make a film
0: yeah, um, and casting the crew is something I put a lot of thought into, and it, it has to be the right personalities for the specific project. And for me, it's the people who really have the are there for the love, not the money, and who really have the passion, um, because they're the ones that are going to give their all. Um, certainly, in the swimmers, that was my primary consideration in hiring the team, and it. It was a big budget film for me, um, in that it was a big step up from my first film.
1: But it was quite a long time between My Brother the Devil
0: and... I'm glad you said that, because that's one of my favorite things. Yeah, and believe it or not, I was working every single day between those two films. So I made um, the swimmers came out last year, and I made as you saw my brother Delville in 2012.
1: And it got all these, you know, great rewards. It did really well. It did well at Sundance and Berlin. Great luminous filmmaking. London. Said Screen <laughs> International. What? what so did, you must have thought brilliant. I shall go and make films every day.
0: And then you realize that the statistics of people who make a first film and then go on to a second film are really dire, and it's actually just as hard, and you have to start over again with a blank page and um, in order to make it good. I mean, look, after My Brother the Devil, certainly doors were open to me in terms of I had a lot of projects come my way, but the truth is they weren't that good. And I had maybe a bit of second album syndrome where I was like, okay, my first film did so well. Now I really want my second film to be everything that I think it, you know, want it to be. And over those many years, I directed three episodes of TV. I had that experience, which was amazing.
1: That was for Danny Boyle. Yeah,
0: the Babylon, yeah. yeah. And, um,
1: Three episodes of TV, like she went and did Casualty, she worked with Danny Boyle, ladies and
0: Yeah, and Jesse Armstrong, who did Succession. <laughs> um, and it was a lovely team, but that was me directing something I hadn't written before, and that was a new experience. And that was amazing, because it was like, I couldn't believe it was a real job, that someone would just let you do the fun bit, the directing, without all the years of slog writing. <laughs> um so when you say
1: you were offered some things second film and that you were offered projects that came your way but they weren't very good what was it that you said this is this is they're not very good as in this is rubbish i can't do anything with this or you were like you know you have to be quite strong to sort of because it has to be tempting to say well that's quite good i could do something with this but your heart what is it your instinct that tells you that's not right for me
0: Because I know that it's a long process, I personally never want to make a film I've seen before because you have to, like I said, that excitement and that passion, it starts with you. And if you can't find that genuine you know, hunger and need for this film to be made, then how on earth can you get a team uh, (laughs) um, to get behind this and to build the whole project and move it forward? So I think um, I'm quite, I, I said no to a lot of things because they were things I'd seen before and I always want to be trying to do something new. So with The Swimmers it was a sports movie but also a refugee story um, and it did have siblings in it but it was about so much more and I'd never seen that particular story together and I had a lot of very firm ideas I like when I first heard the story because it's based on a true story of what it could be. Um, and I, I just knew I had a need to make it.
1: It's got scenes in this film, scenes in the swimmers I've never seen before, and it's the way that feature films, almost fictions, if you like, can bring the news to life in the most human way. To, that, that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a very impactful shot of uh, discarded life vests. Right, really, it's sort of almost a throwaway shot, but it says everything. It's so powerful, and, and, and you realise the state of the crisis. And you know that was. Two years ago, it, it, it grows, it continues, it gets nearer, uh, and impacts us all. So I, I thought I, I haven't got a question about that, but I just thought I'd tell you that. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, how, how did you pack all of that in to, into what is essentially a tale of two sw- swimming sisters? It could have just been a Disney underdog sports movie, but it's about everything. How did you pack it all in? Was that the idea?
0: Um, Yeah, no, so I think that when I came on board that project, I had a lot that I wanted to say through the film and a lot that I wanted to pack in. which is why I'm so incredibly proud of it. But even I think the the team making the film didn't realize some of those things to begin with. Um, And it felt like it was a really hard film to make. Not only did we make it during COVID and it was essentially a road movie, um, but one of the things that people say is don't work with children or with water because it's notoriously difficult. But you know, those dinghy scenes, we really put a dinghy with 25 people in the Aegean Sea in Turkey and filmed it for real. And we were in a camera boat are tied to the other boat floating along with them. So when you see the waves, that's not fake, that's real. And um, in order to get that authenticity, I ended up um, casting a lot of refugees in the film as well. and they were the cast members in the dinghy with the actors mixed in with the actors and that gave a certain vibe and feeling on set of what we were doing was really important we were telling a story we cared about that we wanted to tell in the right way and we wanted to honor the real people whose story this was
1: you you said you 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 had a lot to pack in the film is terrific but it the journey on doing it I admire you so much because you must have worked with someone like Netflix a big production company working title you meet a lot of strong experienced people with money with opinions who must have told you many times to do it differently how do you stick to your guns how do you do that how do you argue your way into getting your version there
0: I'm very determined (laughs) Um, and to do it nicely with a smile (laughs) Um, and I think In the beginning, it's tough, but yes, you're right. Um, A lot of the swimmers was um, me really fighting for the things, but then I see that as the director's job. You know, it's, it's your job to hold the vision for the film and to be the protector of the film all the way through from any forces that could damage it. Not that what I think is right, because it's this weird combination of being a control freak and being in control of everything, but also letting go and being determined and dogged about the things that you know are right, like, for example, having a portion of that film in Arabic.
1: Was that at Toronto
0: last year? Yeah, it opened Toronto Film Festival Open, last opened year. opened the
1: Toronto Film Festival mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. They loved you so much that they've asked you back Yeah. <laughs> with your next film, which is called? Unicorns. And what's that about?
0: <laughs> so um, Unicorns is a, and you're hearing it here first, because we've hardly spoken about it. She
1: wouldn't it. tell, but I was like, tell her. She was like, I don't, they don't want me to talk about it. They won't, she wouldn't give me a trailer, nothing.
0: So Unicorns is a cross-cultural uh, love story about a single father from Essex and a um, uh, closeted British Indian drag queen living a double life. And it, it was actually a script that i co-directed with James Krishna Floyd that he wrote um, and it, uh, that was that was fun. we've seen
1: James Krishna Floyd have we not on screen already today
0: yes he's he's an he acted in my in the swimmers and also in my brother the devil and then he wrote this lovely script unicorns, and I just fell in love with the characters and it, uh, really saw how it should be brought to life. And it, he had worked for seven years trying to get it off the ground. Um, so it's a
1: British film? Yes, uh,
0: and completely. And, well, actually, it's also a Welsh film because Film Cymru uh, invested in the film and helped us realise it. So
1: so you're going off to do that in... Soon, in a few weeks, yes, yeah, September,
0: weeks. beginning of September. So, yeah, is,
1: it, weeks. is it, is it a, in the... Is it it's a, in a special
0: presentation. Special presentation.
1: Yeah. Well, I can see why, because you are very special, Sally mm-hmm. el uh, would you please thank her for her wisdom and her wit and her thank brilliant you. films? A masterclass <laughs> from Sally El Hosseini at Green Man. Thank you so much you. for joining us this afternoon. Sally El Hi,
2: I'm Martha. I'm 12. I'm Kai. I'm 11. I'm Jasmine. I'm 12.
3: I'm Samson. I'm 12.
2: Hi, I'm Astrid. I'm 10. Welcome to the Green Man podcast. We're here with Badminton School Science Outreach. Tell us a bit about yourselves. Hello there. It's wonderful to be here. It's amazing to be at Green Man. This is our fourth time here. What we do with our science outreach program is we go out into schools and give children in year five year six we give them amazing uh, liquid nitrogen science shows partly just to get them interested about science but partly to show them that science is for everyone there aren't enough young ladies out there doing physics at the moment and what we want to do is show that girls do physics we also want to show boys that girls do physics as well so that it becomes really really fun really popular for everyone to do science so with me today i've brought honor Jasmine, Nastasia and Prudence from Year 11 and Year 12. Um, part of our outreach programme involves older students training the younger students. Um, so Nastasia and Jasmine have actually been involved in helping um, Honour and Prudence step up into this really rather amazing festival that we're at.
3: If, say, someone in the years that you teach
2: really doesn't like or doesn't know that they would like science, how do you like, get them into it? One of the key things that we do is we give everybody an opportunity. They're quite strongly encouraged to take up that opportunity in year 10 to go out and do one of the school's shows um, in primary schools and we find that after someone has done that first show they're a bit nervous before doing it they go there they have a great time they're working with this amazing material we'll show you a little bit in a minute and then they find that they're quite enthusiastic about continuing on wanting to do more some of my best presenters aren't actually scientists some of them are people who've gone down humanities roads have you got any favorite like science experiments that you like to show oh i'm glad that you asked that question we've actually brought a few um demonstrations with us would you like to see some liquid nitrogen Yes, please. Okay, so, so has just poured some liquid
3: nitrogen into the jug. And when we put some liquid nitrogen into the Pringle tin, because the Pringle tin it's at room temperature, which is around 200 degrees warmer, is going to cause all that uh, liquid nitrogen to boil and it will turn now into nitrogen gas. And nitrogen gas takes up about 700 times as much space than it does in its liquid form, meaning that there's going to be a really high pressure uh, building up inside that Pringle
2: can. OK, great. So what we're going to do is we're going to create a cloud inside of this bottle. And we're going to do this by putting in isopropyl alcohol, which we use because it's very good at vaporizing. And now what Jasmine's doing is pressurizing the bottle by using the bicycle pump. And that's going to build up a very high pressure inside of that bottle. And how we're going to form this bottle is from going from high pressure to low pressure. And that will cause a temperature change which will vaporize the bottle. Because it's at a very high pressure, it's going to create a bang noise and now there's the cloud.
3: So what would happen if you said breathe that in?
2: It's probably not a good idea to breathe it in as it's one of the main component components in hand sanitizer because it's an alcohol, but in um, small quantities in the air it's fine. So what's happening here is, is that when the plunger is pushed against the Magdeburg plate, the air is essentially being pushed out, so it creates a really, really good seal on the Magdeburg plate. So when you try to take it off, you're trying to create a vacuum, which is very, very hard. But as you've got the pressure of the atmosphere pushing down, which is 100,000 um, pascals, pushing down on it, it's very, very hard to remove, which is why you get that suction sort of noise. So what has just been demonstrated is what we call Bernoulli balls. It's basically based off Bernoulli's principle. So what happens is the fast moving, low pressure air coming out of the hairdryer creates a stream. So when the ball is placed into that stream of low pressure air, fast moving, low pressure air, there is a sort of area surrounding the ball that's high pressure. So the low pressure will go around that ball and it kind of keeps it inside that jet stream. Okay, so I hope nobody in this tent likes their eyebrows too much because
4: we're about to see a bit of an explosion. This is one of my favorite experiments. We've got flash cotton, which is normal cotton wool that's been treated with um, nitric acid to create partially nitrated cellulose. And that basically means that oxygen has been stuck onto the fibers. And of course, you need oxygen to burn. And so when you have lots of oxygen, you're gonna get more burning. (laughs)
3: Where does the cotton go after it burns up?
4: So, it's basically complete combustion of the flash cotton, and now it's turned into carbon dioxide and water, and it's floating around the atmosphere.
2: We're really lucky to have this program where we're able to go out and inspire young people to go off and enjoy doing some science. In front of me, I've got five people kneeling on the floor in the middle of a festival, just enjoying making a carpet smoke. And it's this kind of thing that we're trying to get happening. Really, what we want to do is see everyone just experimenting, having a go with science, just finding that sense of wonder as you see something a little bit unusual. It's been absolutely wonderful to be part of the Green Man podcast. And thank you so much for inviting us. Bye!
4: is Man Podcast. I am Dolly Trolley, a drag performer and host of the Wishbone Stage, one of the hosts of the Wishbone Stage, uh, which is the late night secret-ish cabaret speakeasy tent uh, full of drag artists, cabaret, burlesque, um, late night pop and dance and camp music, uh, where we have lots of different shows uh, going on, which I've had the delight of uh, being involved in this year to host and program some of it and um, it's a lovely camp all time.
3: Hi, I'm uh, Ollie Dutton and I uh, am the idiot behind Dutty Disco, which is its sixth appearance at Freeman um, this year. We thought last year would be the last one, but here we are again. You uh, see the walled garden now, do round the twists. Did it last night, which was very, very fun. Um, I just basically sort of play lots of Italo records and then get sillier into like sort of speed garage and the last night was lots of hardcore as well so it was a uh, uh, organized chaos but it was always a lot of fun. Danced on stage wearing different themes each year for the dancers. A bit all good fun and
4: um, yes yeah, good to be back here at Green Man again. So do you want to tell us about the Wishbone stage then? I the shall tell you year? about the Wishbone stage so yes it is the second year of the Wishbone. Uh, it launched last year to add an extra element um, at night time to the experience. Make it a bit more fabulous. Um, I think so. <laughs> I think yeah. I think yeah. Add some add some more cam. Add some fabulous um, to the rest of the festival and something a bit different to go see. A lot of people are calling it the cabaret tent, which it very much is, and nobody really knows what cabaret is. We don't, um, like, <laughs> but you want it to be. You know. It's just Well, it is basically what you want it to be. and It's kind of like as long as nobody's getting hurt, you can do whatever you want on stage. Basically, is, is the general rule. Um, I'm sure there's someone darts. doing. I'm sure there are probably some fantastic drag kings doing bowling and darts on stage. Well, there's often a conversation about well, is cabaret a type of performance or is it a space? Uh, if we're to get arty about it, uh, but well, that's what's, not what's your view. Me. Um, just state of mind. I think it is a cross between a theatre, a bar, and a house party, uh, where it's not that we've broken the fourth wall, it was just never built, and a, a performative conversation uh, between the people on stage and, and what's happening in the audience. The audience is very much part of it. Um, it's very much, about you that can fourth see wall me. Yes, that's nice. Yeah, it's like, you can very much see us, we can see you, so put a smile on your face <laughs> and,
3: um, yeah. act like you're enjoying it whether it's good or not yeah, because otherwise um, it's a house
4: party in a boss we can kick you out if necessary <laughs> yeah and, and it's very much like they need to make noise anytime we do something that whether it's impressive or not if it looks like we're trying to be impressive um, then please scream and shout your heads off yeah. um, or like if we're kind of doing burlesque like costume reveals or something it's just very awkward if you're whipping a coat off to a, a silver tinsel dress underneath and nobody cares <laughs> yeah. um, but fortunately it's been a fabulous audience there um, so yeah it launched last year it was a secret well oh, I'm to, to break the secret to podcast listeners of where it's situated it's out the back of the cocktail, uh, cocktail bar um, and was quite small last year and this year they've made it much much bigger following its success and there's, yeah, a, a variety of different cabaret acts on uh, throughout the nights, which I've brought two cabaret collectives, uh, one called Cabaret La Douche, which are a trio of myself and some more drag performers called Felix the Freak and Lee Spinder. Um And we have a cabaret show in which we are... 1999 time traveling scientists and the audience are as well. We are all <laughs> whether, they, whether
3: they like it or not. <laughs> whether they
4: like it or not, it's kind of like we, we tell them what the party is that they're at, and we're like, Oh, thank you, esteemed colleagues of the Royal Institute of Chronological Research. And uh, we are having a party to celebrate the completion of our efforts to protect the world from demise by a Yasified Millennium bug who is quite grumpy that uh, humanity hasn't appreciated at the end of the last millennium. And so is therefore going to unleash hell. It's Taylor's old of the time, isn't it? Absolutely, really, yeah. We were we were asked if we could do a show about the decades, and this is what we came up with. <laughs> and and uh, so we have a, a time traveling time teaser, which we um, all ride back in time to the 1960s, and then glorify the last 40 years of the millennium to persuade the Millennium Bug that humanity is worth saving. Good. Um, yeah. Um, and in the end, the Millennium Bug says, "Well, you've tried quite hard." You haven't really convinced me, but you're all going to die of climate change and far-right politics anyway, so (laughs) I might as well spare you. Um, so there's that, then we have another Cabaret Collective called Cabaret Sauvignon, which is myself, uh, Reese's Pieces, uh, Bicurious George, uh, who's a Very nature-themed good. drag king, uh, kind of a, a David Attenborough of drag. Have you got Bicurious uh, B.I.G. as well? That'd be- uh, m- maybe next year. Maybe <laughs> no- <laughs> uh, next year we'll get them. Uh, and Cynthia Seaward, who's a, a lip-syncing drag queen who uh, performs an act about, um, how familiar are you with changing rooms? Uh, I'm, I'm familiar with that. Uh, Do you recall good. an episode where um, they built a floating shelf unit? I don't, but tell me oh. about it. Oh, everyone get on the internet and find the, uh, the floating shelf unit and the teapots uh, <gasps> episode of Changing Rooms. Um, they build someone a floating shelf unit to store their antique teapots that these people care deeply for. I can see where this is going. But the floating shelf unit breaks and they leave and come back to find all their teapots smashed and we have a drag queen who performs that scene with Shirley Bassey um, <laughs> and it just takes the roof off um, and it's fantastic. fantastic and that's my friend Cynthia Seaward who's with us as well um, and then yeah so there's some other cabaret collected as well the lip-sinkers uh, Cumrag, uh, National Theatre Wales are here uh, throughout the night and then it's kind of DJs on afterwards playing um, I think Camp Anthems is um, their main campfire figure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like Whitney Houston, Steps, ABBA etc. Uh, which I don't think you really find as much of elsewhere in the festival. So for those people, I who play to... a lot of ABBA here. Oh, over right, the years, well, I need to spend more time at Dutty <laughs> Dutty <laughs> Jessica, uh, What about you? How many Green Man's have you? What's your Green uh, Man history? I
3: think it's the. This is the. I think it's the tenth or eleventh I've attended. Wow. Um, the first was two, 2009, I think. Then a few years off, but then, uh, yeah. But then we've uh, then I've been sort of everyone since then. But then uh, we started doing, I just had this, the disco just because I know Ben who runs it quite well just because I work, work in music I've known him just for, years, a very close friend. And then um, just once I, I said, if I just get a load of my, um, at that time, female friends basically dressed just have been latex and I'll just play pop bangers and like silly Tallo disco and that Yeah. And he said yes. Amazing. So and then, then I had to go and um, like ask some friends to do this with me. dancers, and they also said yes. Um so he was in the in the world garden of her So the first year it was just uh it was me and three people it was my friend uh, Naomi, friend Levi who's actually now in self-esteem so, uh, performing tonight. And then um friend um, Louise is a LF Markey designer. And they did it and they just they had a really good time doing it, and it was like, yeah, this worked. More people we thought would uh, turned up, and it was fun. So next year we have got more people in. Amazing. And it was fun. The yeah, end. It's kind of gone up from there. It's uh, we now sort of do do uh, agenda split for the dancers because it was <laughs> at some point kind of like, I did have this thing like, like <laughs> me as a white man with these girls dancing like, like that. It's like, it is kind of objectifying and like runs. So like, yeah, that's totally fair enough. Yeah, we do need to split yeah. this uh, split this off a bit more. So, um, so yeah, it's it's um, fine. It's um this year is sort of some new people uh, doing it. Uh, some old, some new, and then, yeah, we moved down to um, uh, around the twist this year. It's just really good fun, you know. It's um and it's it's quite it's quite interesting to see that the. Just the crowd reaction around the Twitter, is much better because everyone's just so much closer up yeah. so you can really see everyone that's going where, for it there. that's where me and my
4: friends go for like a, yeah. a late night dance after and all the music
3: so it's it's it's, yeah, it's really it's really good then also the weird thing is I might mean, sound really old here but just seeing like loads of really sort of like you know quite young uh, young the youth uh sort yeah. of really getting into like some of, sort of old records like, playing playing like old like, so, like 90s garage and and like hardcore records like from late 80s early 90s and then the which
4: is like early 80s and that but absolutely going for it as well which is it just it's nice to see the young people having fun. Yes, <laughs> no, absolutely. I think our stage is a bit similar there that it's, um, I guess ours is, I think, I believe ours is at over 18 space as well. So it's for those who mm. might want just a different vibe that they've had or just to move around different spaces. And yeah, there's um, a nice a nice mix. And how's the reaction been for this year? I mean, good Thursday night this year, was it great? Absolutely bonkers, absolutely wild. I think the tent was open from 9 p.m. And by like five past, 10 past nine, it was full. Absolutely rammed. They were turning people away, couldn't fit people in. Really full. Everybody was so up for it. There was um, the segment that I do where I do some my aerobics routines and ask everyone to dance along. I wasn't sure how well that was going to go down. I'm like, oh, do people want to move? Do they want to follow along with things? Is that they... part
3: participation thing, isn't it? When, yeah. it, when, when it's not a, a sort of a
4: set, sort of drag crowd, or such, or something like that. Yeah. Is that fair And, to say? and um, uh, so I am self-titled the world's leading drag fitness instructor. Um, <laughs> nobody's challenging me. Yeah, yeah. saying, we we yeah, can't yeah, find yeah, anyone else any at in, the moment. Like pinning on that it's self-claimed uh, but do you know what everybody was so on it it was absolutely hilarious like doing one thing or and just seeing however many people there were there doing the exact same Absolutely hilarious. Like, yeah. you could do whatever you want. The power of a microphone is wild. Um, <laughs> do, you, was, do you become what? a monster with the power at the end? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I should <laughs> never be given any more authority than I currently have. Um, now they're letting you do this as well. And now they're letting me, yeah, this podcast is, yeah, beware, we're taking over soon.
3: <laughs> so, obviously, you said this, it's in your second secondary man yes. intent anyway. So, um, I mean, are, are you a festival
4: goer,
3: generally um, or not? Or? Yeah,
4: I've been um, going to festivals since I was about 16. Um, and I'm now, what, 13, 19 now. I'm yeah. 19. <laughs> <laughs> very kind <laughs> um, and, um, but I'm uh, not Green Man before but it is it is now my favourite festival yeah, I, will, I will admit um, it's just got a completely different vibe to all the others yeah. I'm just like there just aren't any idiots here you know, there's no rubbish on the floor it's lovely you can have a sit down and not be surrounded by you know fag packets so it's good that it's like people have just come to see something wild and weird um particularly with our tent so we're because we're a secret-ish tent we're like not on the program <laughs> um no, no it's an open secret now no, it's, it's an it's an open secret um although people keep asking us what the password is there's no password but to tell, every, but to tell, them, tell everyone different ones never been a password um i know we were then conspiring and thinking what we should uh make it oh wait, to meet you and chat to you and, and, um,
3: indeed, well, well, thank you very much, yes, Dolly. Thank you,
4: Ollie. Yep, we've been Ollie
3: and Dolly oh, yeah. <laughs> on the Green Man podcast. Oh.